Hello and welcome to the Idea to Startup Podcast Season 1 presented by Tacklebox. Today we're chatting with Joey Cafone, the founder of Baron Fig. Baron Fig's tagline is tools for thinkers. They make everything from beautifully designed notebooks to pens to backpacks. I first noticed Baron Fig when they launched a Kickstarter for their first product, which was a notebook called The Confidant. This was years ago, and I've watched from afar as they've innovated and grown like a weed in a space where I frankly didn't think there was that much room for innovation. I was excited to talk to Joey. Building any brand with a consistent, differentiated point of view is incredibly impressive, but building it in a space that seems as saturated as the office supply world is pretty mind-blowing. We talk a lot about differentiation and something he calls the attention pie, which can be a game changer for early stage founders, especially those trying to stand out in a crowded space. I also love Joey's point of view on brand and design. Lots of founders come to me and say that they want brand or design to be a differentiator, but they don't have it on the founding team. He's really helpful strategizing on ways a founder can prioritize brand, even if it's not something that they're classically trained to do. It's a really fun conversation. He's a great guy. I had a blast. Hopefully you enjoy and head over to gettacklebox.com backslash podcast to see all the notes, the books we mentioned, and also a quick tool that'll hopefully help you with that attention pie. And here is Joey. Good morning. Hello, everyone out there. I'm Joey from Baron Fig. I'm the quote unquote CEO, which sounds like a highfalutin title, but I'm really the co-founder and, and core designer of Baron Fig in New York City. And awesome. Baron Fig, in a nutshell, makes tools for thinkers. And I think right now that's kind of like an ambiguous thing. Maybe that's what Nike faced 50 years ago when they said they make goods for athletics, perhaps. But uh, hopefully in another 10 or 20 years, that uh, will be clear as day. Nice. So I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you today because, as I mentioned, I've been giving out Baron Fig notebooks to all of the Tacklebox cohorts literally since day one. So it was, it was kind of my way to borrow credibility. <laughs> and that this was like, it was this really nice notebook. I'd slap a tackle box sticker on it. And so from like cohort one, people were like, oh man, this guy's got his stuff together. He's got these nice notebooks. There you go, man. So it, it kind of comes full circle. So I, I think that that's a cool place to start. Why I think it's so awesome to talk to you is you've built this incredible product that is very focused, incredibly customer driven, very brand driven. You've done it with no venture money. You know, we have a lot of founders who are thinking about building physical products, and it seems like you've overcome a lot of hurdles that they think are not overcomable. So I, I think it'd be cool to hear a little bit about your origin story to hear how Baron Fig got going. Um, yeah. And then I'll just sort of pick you apart and ask a bunch of questions. Cool. So Baron Fig, the tools for thinkers started with a notebook called it the Confidant Notebook. Confidant is kind of like your best friend uh, and it goes everywhere with you. And this idea came from when I was in art school back in 2009 for like four years. Uh, and I noticed one thing specifically, and that was that the, my fellow design students each had the same two tools. And one was a laptop, which was always the same. And one was a notebook, which was always different. Of course, the laptops were MacBooks and the notebooks were different sizes and shapes and colors and paper types and brands, of course. And I just thought it was fascinating that there was one tool which had 
complete ubiquity and the other tool, which was the total opposite. And mm-hmm. long story short, I brought it, I, I talked about it enough to um, my future co-founder, Adam Cornfield. And finally at a Thai restaurant one night, he just stood up, he literally stood up and slammed his <laughs> hands on the table. And he's like, I've heard enough about these notebooks. Why don't we just make them ourselves? And, and I'll never forget it too. It was this Thai restaurant. The food was great, but the, the, the tablecloths had like a picnic picnic pattern. Like, I mean, it was just so weird. And then of course, Adam standing up and slamming the, the picnic table uh, just drilled it into my head forever for no reason. So that was, that was the beginning. <laughs> I love that. And that's, it's funny. Like um, I speak with founders who have a similar story all the time where they've been like thinking about something for two years and then whatever it is, something's just like, sometimes it's someone else because they talk about it so much. They're just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm doing this thing. Um, right. And I think that's actually a really important point. I should preface this a little bit more about who's going to be listening to this thing. So I think early on, these are going to be people with startup ideas, like early in the startup days, maybe haven't quit their job yet, um, or maybe just quit their job. So I think this is a relevant point. So you decide, all right, I want to do this. What's your next step? Yeah. Uh, so at that point, I had just graduated and w- was working as a designer doing branding. I figured, okay, the best way to, to really see if this is a a viable product or a problem that anyone else has but me is to to test it. So step one was I sent an email to thinkers around the world. And I define thinkers as basically anyone who use their mind professionally or as a hobby. So writing, drawing, uh, architects, accounting, anything really. And I asked one simple question. And the question, the email was like three sentences. And the question was, what do you like in a sketchbook or notebook? And I sent this out to over 500 people manually, one by one. Wow. Yeah, with like a little personal comment in each one. Uh, and wow. I, I sent it to so many people because I figured, oh, maybe I'll get a 10 or 20% response rate and I can get maybe a good good 50 to 100 conversations going. Well, it turns out that I must have struck a chord because I got over 80% response rate. And I was having over 400 conversations that spanned five months with people passionately telling me how much the notebook market was lacking for them. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I woke up in the morning, I would email all the way to like one or two o'clock and then I would design a little bit and just rinse and repeat daily, just constant emails. Uh, and so, Incredible. yeah, it was, it was, it was a good time. I, I actually had to quit my job because I couldn't keep up with all the, the emailing, like the emailing alone was a f- near full-time gig. I, I have a couple questions on that. Yeah. So like a lot of times our founders would do something like that where they speak with a bunch of customers, customers get excited and give them a hundred feature requests. How did you sort of synthesize what people were saying into a coherent vision for an initial product? You know, it was almost a really like a numbers game. I mean, talking to that many people, I kept a spreadsheet of general things that I heard. And you could just kind of say, like, how many times was this said? How many times was that said? So, for example, having a notebook with high quality paper was, you know, said like 75% of the time. Having a notebook that opens flat was said like 70% of the time. And so at that point, you could really, when you've got such volume, you can kind of just do it as a process of elimination. And then you're right that there's at some point, like you do have to say, when do I stop or what's ridiculous? Or my personal favorite is when people ask for something and you hear it a lot, 
and then in reality nobody uses it do, do you know what yeah. i mean i wish i had a better example unfortunately nothing is coming to mind you know everybody's like man i wish this this tv was three dimensions <laughs> and then we do 3d tvs and people are like man that's that's a pain in the ass i've got a good one for you um so, so okay. when i was building my startup find your lobster uh the dating app way back in the day sort of pre pre tinder days i would always run these customer interviews with single people and there would always be like one or two people in this group that I was speaking with who would be in a relationship. And the premise of Find Your Lobster is we would match you up with your friend's friends, sort of like obvious now, but at the time was a little bit novel. And these friends and relationships would be like, oh, you got to build an app that allows me to match up my friends. Like, that's all I want to do. I, like, I want in on the fun. And as a founder, I'm thinking like, this is amazing. Now we can get people who aren't in relationships and people who are in relationships on a dating app. Yep. So we built that feature and exactly zero people did it. And <laughs> they, they just wanted to talk about it. But when push came to shove, every response would be like, oh, I actually don't want to get in the middle of this. So that was fun. Yeah, that's interesting. How did you conduct your, um, your interviews? Was it on the phone? We did some phone calls, but for us, it was so easy because you can just go to, you could go to a bar and assume that a good chunk of folks there were going to be single. So that's actually a good question to, to sort of turn around and ask you is, so the 500 emails is a great start. Um, and maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit, but how do you know which customers are going to be Baron Fig customers before they're Baron Fig customers? How do you target? So like you said earlier, a lot of your founders, the founders that you work with seem to have had this burning problem for a couple of years, right? So essentially what we're saying is that they are most likely the target demographic. I wasn't any different. So I was also the target demographic for this notebook. So that's a good place to start is like, you know, finding people like me. Uh, so in that case, designers and whatnot. But in addition, I did have a major benefit with getting email addresses because a lot of creatives and thinkers they put up portfolio websites and it includes contact information. Mm. So it was like right there for the taking. Mm. So if you were, I don't know, doing like just let's say soccer moms, for example, I don't know how you'd find soccer moms. Like you'd have to go to soccer fields because soccer moms aren't putting up, uh, you know, soccer portfolios with their kids or something. So it was just easier. That's great. And one thing, then we'll get on to what happened after the emails. We talk a lot about a first step for founders. So like, you need to make something that feels a little bit more digestible than like, I don't have a company and I want a company. How do I get there? And we talk a lot about paperclip businesses. And what I think of a paperclip business as is when you sort of wake up in the morning and you've got two bins on your desk and one bin has say 50 paperclips in it and the other bin's empty. And then you do something 50 times and each time you do it, you move the paperclip over. And that's kind of a way to start moving your business forward so that you know that you're going to be making progress. And so those 500 emails and then responding to those emails gave you something manageable to do to start getting data from customers early on that didn't feel maybe as overwhelming as physically creating a book might. Agreed. It's all about baby steps. I mean, we, we hear this so often. My wife and I were just talking about this this morning before she left. And it's kind of like accepting that you have this grand vision or this this bigger goal and then saying like, hey, what are these really tiny, tiny things? And then just knocking them out. Honestly, the biggest challenge in doing this, you know, and everybody definitely listen to this part, is not actually the tasks themselves. It's more of the management of your, of your mind, calming yourself down, 
being patient. Oh my goodness. The, hmm. I am not a patient person, <laughs> but I have, I have had to have been patient for so long. I mean, we're, we just hit five years that the company's launched and I've been doing this for six years and there's still so much that I want to do. Hmm. I mean, even things that I've had on paper since day one and I'm still waiting for them. So wow. patience is patience is colossal thing that you need to foster. Interesting. Yeah. We had a question from one of our founders. I mentioned, I sent an email out asking our alumni for questions. And one of them was about how do you make space and time for yourself to sort of do this, to, to take a step back and realize that this is going to be something that takes a long time and sort of manage mental health as you go through this. Yeah. Great question. I saw that. Uh, there's, I think it's twofold. Number one is I just show up at Baron Fig early as sin uh, every day. So I'm there by like 6.45 in the morning. Huh. And I open the place. I make the coffee. I turn on the lights. And we have to turn on the lights one by one because the way the, the way it works. So I literally <laughs> walk around, click, click, click. <laughs> but the routine and, and then having the place alone for almost two hours in the morning allows me some personal time. So it's at work, but it's completely private, which I think is is very important and not the same as at home and being alone. And then in order to get the juices flowing, I have a kind of like a four point system that I do. And, um, you know, anyone feel free to tweet at me or email me or whatever, and I can explain it more. But basically, uh, I do my body, my mind, and then I do an input and an output. So I exercise for the body. I meditate for the mind. And then my input is I always read. And then my output is I play the trumpet. And so, huh. and I, I am not a trumpet player. Like I'm not a musician. I'm learning the trumpet. I've only been doing about a year and a half now. Huh. But it's, it's allowing me to do like focused output to create something that's not natural for me. So if I sat down and just did graphic design for 20 minutes, it wouldn't be the same because it's almost automatic at this point, but I have to be very focused. And so that, that focus kind of puts all of those things together, the body, the mind, and the input to perform. I love that. And it's worked for me in, in getting myself set up in the morning, essentially sharpening the blade. And then I have some alone time. And I, I think that's really important. Awesome. I love that. I think it's tough to, to be patient with the job. And so I think quicker iteration or learning is like totally different type of learning, like learning the trumpet is, is yeah. super interesting. Cool. So let's jump back in. You wrote these 500 emails. You've got a bunch of responses. People are excited. You've been wanting to do this for years. What do you do next? Okay. So once I realized that this was a need that everyone else also had, I got really excited. At the time, I was working with Adam Cornfield, who became my future co-founder, and a third friend named Scott Robertson. And the three of us had essentially, we were all looking to build companies. And each of us committed four months out of the year to the other two to work for free. So three times four is 12. So basically a year-long project. My time had come. Baron Fig was my project. The emails were coming in. And I realized that the most important thing to motivate these other two was to, to capture the momentum and get them excited. So I immediately, before our weekly meeting, we used to week, uh, meet every week at Chipotle, which is basically where Baron Big was born. 
Uh, before our Chipotle meeting that weekend, I went all over the city and I found all the materials to make a notebook. Then I sat down the following morning in my underwear. I didn't even get dressed. I was so excited to do it. I just sat there in boxers and I watched YouTube and built from scratch our first notebook, which we still have today. Yeah. It wow. had, the cover is actually, I, for, I bought everything, but I forgot to buy the cardboard that would make the cover stiff because it's something it's you know out of sight out of mind so i ended up using cheerio boxes which which are still <laughs> tucked in there to this day at baron fig uh, and i brought this and it was disgusting i mean it was a terrible 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 prototype like ugly as hell but when i showed up at chipotle and i handed this thing to them and i said here's the first idea they were floored they weren't looking at this like, wow, this is a you know piece of crap. They were like, this is amazing. This is really cool. And we immediately dove in and started talking about you know, why this and why that. And then rinse and repeat. I did it a couple more times. And finally, we went and um, made a prof- got a professional bind- book binder to make a real book based on my prototypes, which we then used for our Kickstarter. So I think that's a cool... That's a cool thought there where it's like when everything's theoretical, it's tough to really make progress on it. As soon as you throw something on the table that everyone can discuss and pull and prod and poke, you can then actually start making progress. So like the emails led to this product that took everything from being theoretical to something that people were excited about. And then you got it right. built. Awesome. And then next steps, Kickstarter. So tell me about that. Yeah, I want to emphasize the, what you just said. The importance of building a really, really terrible prototype is not to be overlooked. We, uh, Adam and I taught a class at the School of Visual Arts where I went, basically Startup 101 or something is what they wanted us to call it. And <laughs> we had students, we forced students to bring in the crappiest prototype possible in the first week. And it was amazing how much fun everybody had and how much conversation was there and then how much progress was made because they had started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're out there and you're doing a, a physical good product, definitely hack it together. I don't care if it's made out of paper or clay or Play-Doh, whatever you need, mm-hmm. just get something that you can sit down with and look at and show people. And we still do this. Uh, we still do that to this day at Baron Vick. Our, our pro- first prototypes are just the silliest things. I love that. That's great. So to answer your question, back when 2013, Kickstarter was still cool and it was pre-mainstream Kickstarter. I think um, that, I don't know if you guys remember the coolest cooler, which had like $10 million. Yeah, Yeah, that brought Kickstarter into the spotlight. Before that, it was actually a really great community. I, I have Today, I think it's a little sullied because people are dubious of, of the authenticity of projects. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, in 2013, we put our notebook on Kickstarter for $15,000 over 30 days. It turned out that we struck a chord, like I said, and we ended up doing 11 times our goal for 168000 And uh, I think we ended up doing almost 9,000 notebooks in 30 days, which got us started. Jeez. So I have a couple quick, quick, quick questions on that. Yeah. Did Kickstarter do a lot of the spread? Was a lot of the spread sort of just viral people telling each other about it? Did you run ad campaigns? How did you get so much traction? Yeah. So there was no ad campaigns uh, whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. I, 
I mean, Facebook was a little different back then, but even still, like I wasn't as sophisticated. It didn't even enter my mind to do ad campaigns. So what we did was I was so good at emailing at that point that I turned from emailing thinkers to just emailing journalists nonstop wow. all day, every day, like one wow. by one. There was no, none of these mass emails or this press kit. Like I just looked up a bunch of their articles. I read them. I made real educated commentary. And then I linked to our campaign and I said, hey, you might like this. And mm-hmm. I did that all day, every day. And I basically brute forced our uh, our total revenue. Like it, it was not natural. Kickstarter contributed about fifty percent of it. Man, I love that so much. I think people don't really. A lot of founders come in not really understanding what cold emailing is actually about, and like the spray and pray technique, which is what I think a lot of founders think is best to just like say, "Oh, well, I got this email list somehow, and I emailed ten thousand people the same message." That's not how it'll work. I love how how you were able to do that. The other thing that we talked to our founders about is like early on as a founder, you got to brute force stuff, as you said. And the cool thing about your product is that was what you could brute force. Like that was that was what you could handle and you did everything you could to push uh, customers to the Kickstarter. I get excited about the idea of just brute forcing things. I think we still do it to this day. It's just like, you know, what do they call it? Nose to the grindstone or something? I forget the phrase. Well, I, I think it's a real point. So when I think about all the founders that have done well out of Tacklebox, and, and for people who don't know about Tacklebox, we've had about 160 idea stage founders go through, of which uh, I would say 50 are currently building real products. And um, so that's like a big jump. Of those 50, yeah, it's cool. Um, of those 50, I bet 95% can brute force their product for the first year or two. So if you're building a tech product, you can build it. If you're building a physical product, you can sell it. The differentiator needs to be, your differentiator needs to be able to be brute forced early on. You can't rely on anyone else to do it because no one's going to put in the hours that you did. No one's going to care as much as you do. So I love, <laughs> I love this point you get to too. So it's like you raise 168K and your optionality is gone. It's not like, oh, we're trying this thing maybe. It's like, hey, Joey, you're the founder of Baron Fig now. Uh, you got to build this thing. Yeah. So, so tell me about that moment. Uh, that was that was surreal. I, I re- it's a blur. I remember during the campaign that there were days where I was just sprawled out on the bed, fully clothed, sleeping, shoes and everything, <laughs> just from like the exhaustion of all the emailing, the phone calls, the, the social media. It was a lot. So at the end, I think I was definitely in shock, I was legitimately in shock. I don't think I had any feelings whatsoever. It was just, it had been such a roller coaster for I mean, 30 days is a hell of a long time to go like at max, yeah. max speed. Yeah. So it took a while, but at some point, Adam and I, I mean, we did have the option of saying, hey, let's just sell, you know, sell the 9,000 notebooks, call it a day, or do we start a company? Hmm. And, and we did, of course, decide to start the company and Adam quit his job at that point uh, a few months later. And together, the two of us basically did 100% of the work for a year and a half alone in, uh, in our Baron Fig studio. And you had quit your job prior to the Kickstarter, right? Yeah. So when we actually launched the company, which was, I don't know, let's say six, six months after the campaign, I had been full-time Baron Fig for a year already. Awesome. 
I have a bunch more questions on this phase, but I don't want to spend too much time on it because there's a lot of interesting things to hit on. But I think something that you've done incredibly well, and I, I remember when you guys had that Kickstarter campaign, I saw it on the website Uncrate. Yeah. And I distinctly remember thinking like, wow, this is just incredibly well designed and there's a real brand here. A lot of products on Kickstarter just sort of felt like products and Baron Fig always felt like a brand. And I'm fascinated as to how you were able to do that that early. So any thoughts on how you approached brand at that point, how you approached design at that point? How did you recognize that that could be a differentiator? Uh, for us, it was the brand came first. I worked in branding because I have such a fascination with storytelling. So before, before design school, I went to school for literature and philosophy. So I did a total of eight years straight, including summers, which, yeah, was a total accident. Um, I I graduated (laughs) during the financial crisis. And so I was lucky enough to be able to go back to school. But no one would ever call me a good student. I'll put it that way. So I have no idea how I did eight (laughs) years of school. Uh, But I put all of these things together, the love of storytelling, the love from literature, the love of introspection and and open-ended questions from philosophy, and then, of course, design. And I put that all into a brand that I thought could really speak to me, and then in doing that, speak to people like me. That was the number one focus. Even though the product was, of course, the end deliverable, it came secondary. I guess the easiest way I could describe it is if you say, you know, what versus versus why. It was not about like, what am I making? What am I making? It was always, why am I making this? Why am I making this? And then expressing that rather than what am I making and expressing that. So for founders who don't have a brand background, but recognize that design and brand is critical. Um, and we get a ton of these. I, I meet so many founders who say, I want design to be a differentiator. And, and this is early pre-product, but they don't have a designer on their team. How can they prioritize that? Are there, are there any components of brand that founders should focus on? Yeah. I mean, as a general principle, I'd say keep it simple, especially if it's not your thing. And even though you're not a person who makes design, you are a person who consumes design everywhere. Mm. And so lean on that because you are pretty much highly skilled at that. So when you're looking at design in the world, Apple products, uh, I'm staring at a at a Nokia box for some reason here, um, <laughs> a beautiful mug on my desk. Look at them, and this is going to sound hippy-dippy, I always say that, but try to just sense what you're feeling. Genuinely sense if you're like, wow, that's nice, or eh, I don't like that. And don't worry so much about why. What you want to do is just kind of sharpen the emotional measuring stick that you've got. And what that'll do is then when you go commission someone on Fiverr or kind of find a a cheaper first step, which I totally encourage, you'll at least be able to look at it and say, how does this make me feel? Is it good enough right now? Or is this really kind of crappy? And then go from there. Awesome. And I I don't want to get too tactical, but this just comes up a ton. So I want to ask your advice on it. When founders are looking, let's say on Fiverr or Upwork or wherever else for a designer for their initial stuff, they often want to put together like a design book. So if you were going to make like a three page PowerPoint that someone who doesn't have a design background is going to give to someone who's going to design an early version of the product, what do you think they should include if it was say a three page PowerPoint? Is the designer designing the product from scratch or are they just making it attractive? So this would be 
I think the, the biggest use case we get is a product or service is building out their initial landing page because they're going to test out some customer acquisition channels and they want mm -hmm. it to look like something that prioritizes brand that looks like a real company. We don't want the red flag for people to be that this doesn't look like a real thing. We want the red flag to be messaging or whatever else. So step one is to find a designer that you think can create that stuff. So like when you look at their portfolio and you're like, okay, this is good. I know that could be obvious, but it might as well be stated. And then step two, and this is critical, is don't tell the designer how to design it. Don't say like, I want you know this big banner here with the text large and then this thing on the right, uh, and I want blue or red or whatever it is. Hmm. What you want to do is not don't tell them what, but again, tell them why and who. So tell them, I'm making this because I think my demographic is X, Y, or Z. I think people will specifically like my product because of these two, two or three things. And then let the designer do what they do best. I love that. I think that's a great starting point for folks. We could probably spend the rest of the time talking about that, but let's jump on to something else, which I think is yeah. an impediment for founders is the supply chain for a physical product. If you've never done it before is intimidating. Was that the case when you said like, all right, I've got this Cheerio box, Baron fig design notebook. Now I've got someone producing them. How difficult was it to create a supply chain that was profitable and, and all that logistical stuff? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think back then it was a combination of just being naive and just, I guess, determined. It's not as hard as it sounds really to get a product going. It really depends again, as long as you're not doing like a, a tech product. But back then we just said, hey, we have this book. This is the perfect master version, which we got done by a, a professional, like I mentioned, who was in New York City. And then my co-founder, Adam, took the book. And I think we had a couple more made identical to it. And he basically flew uh, overseas and he said, hey, can you make this? And he just kind of like went to the factories until someone said yes. And then... Uh, then another one said yes, and eventually he had a half a dozen yeses, and they each gave it a shot, and then we chose one. Awesome. It was just straightforward. I mean, it is difficult. If you're trying to do it from the U.S., and it's not a product made in the U.S., yeah, that's going to be hard. But if you're okay with getting on a plane and going somewhere, I think it's straightforward. And even if it's inside the U.S., we have flown to, to every partner that we have all over the U.S. and several of the partners all over the world. I love that any, any founder that's building a physical product is always like, ooh, I don't want to, like, if you're building a tech product, good luck. And any, anybody <laughs> building a tech product is like, physical product? Are you crazy? I'd never do that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. When did you start thinking about margins and the financial implications of pricing and all of that stuff? Uh, so we did that pretty on uh, early on because we had to set numbers for Kickstarter. So like the price of every book and whatnot. Then once we got the actual pricing, I mean, we just kind of did a basic projection sheet. And I don't know, this is kind of unsexy stuff, so I, I won't go too deep, but we basically threw it all in a spreadsheet and we were like, you know, is this profitable? Does this make sense? Um, you know, and if we aim for a margin, let's say 50%. And then uh, just went from there and tested the price to make sure that people purchased it. Awesome. And that Kickstarter sort of validated your price point early on, which is really nice. It did. I guess the the next big question, so you've run this Kickstarter, you've got a product that is that people really like. 
how did you know that you had a company and not just a product? I think really, I just believed it. At some point, you're not going to be able to test certain things, at least I think. Uh, and at some, you know, there are things where you'll be able to test no problem and things where you're like, I'm not going to be able to prove this theory for a long time, but I strongly believe it. And you're going to have to dis, you know, use your best judgment to discern which is which and, and when to say like, you know, I'm right or wrong. Uh, but I, I truly believed that. And I still, of course, believe, and it's, it's proving more and more is that the, the big thing that I needed to bring to this category was a brand that spoke to the people, uh, which is harkens back to all of those different notebooks back at design school where it was just, I was just choosing something off a shelf and it was, it was a commodity. It's like, I mean, going to the supermarket and choosing milk from a bunch of different brands. Like I, I didn't have any, they didn't have any soul. And so that was my theory, my hypothesis. And it took quite a long time to prove it. Very interesting. And, and one last point there. Did you think about raising funding at any point during the first, say, year or two? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm not against getting investors if the investors are right. I believe if you don't need it, don't go for it. I, I'm, I have always subscribed to the one step at a time, little by little approach. So I have no need to just go super fast like a lot of people seem to be uh, attracted to, especially with all the social media and low attention spans these days. Um, it's been six years. So I would say about every two years or so, I've gone and I've done the whole VC circuit uh, to explore interest. And it's kind of when I'm at a place mentally, like I was saying, managing my mental state where I was like, ah, you know, it could be nice to just have some extra funds and, and, and it would just be a little bit easier on us. And then I go and I do this whole thing and I've created a deck, I, I pitch it and then they love it. But then the questions start to be ridiculous. The offers start to be undervalued and I get angry as hell. I mean, I've told some, <laughs> I've said some words to many VCs where I'm like, you know, like you're, you're a goddamn idiot. Like for, for example, I can't tell you how many times like people have said, you know, uh, I really love it. I'm going to give you, you know, X million. And, uh, I'm really looking for 10, 10 times that in return. And I'm like, all right, you know, that's a lot, you know, how long do you want? And they're like five to 10 years. And I'm like, all right, like it's not unreasonable, but yeah, you know, like I can, I mean, if you go invest in the stock market and you get, you know, let's say 20% return, like that's great. Like that's really good. You're beating the market or something. So, you know, now you want a thousand percent over 10 years. And I'm like, man, maybe, you know, why don't we just say like, th you know, three to five X, I can I can nearly guarantee that based on the data. And they're like, well, the thing is, uh, you know, you might be a winner, but, you know, then we'll have like. 15 or 20 losers. And we want to make sure that your investment covers all of our losses. And I'm always, I, I mean, then it's my turn to stand up like Adam did and slam my hand on the table. But I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't, I don't want to curse, but I don't give a crap about your bad bets. That's not my problem. I'm a good bet. You're going to make money off me, period. And I'm in front of you telling you right now with numbers on the table, this is an easy deal. And they're like, well, you know, I, I, we need a little more. And I'm like, goodbye, you're done. I, I can't, I can't deal with it. And, you know, speaking of the, it's kind of the spray and pray 
mentality, like you mentioned about emailing, but for investing. And I, it's just such BS, man. I, you, you clearly hit a sort of subject. I love it. I, I, I just think it's so important for founders to recognize that 99% of companies do not raise any sort of institutional funding. But the majority of the information that we get, like if you go look through medium blogs and all that, it's all about how to raise funding, how to deal, how to build venture back startups. And for that very small number of companies who are going to be growing at whatever the percentage that they want 10x is, VC is great. For the other companies, it's probably not. And you need to recognize that their uh, their incentives are not always going to be aligned with yours. Yeah. And you guys are a default alive company. If you don't raise money, you'll be profitable. You'll grow. Things are great. I, I think that that way more impressive to me than being able to raise funding and take a big swing at something giant. Or it, I, I shouldn't say more impressive. It's different. And I think that everything doesn't need to be shoehorned into this one mold. Um, Agreed. I love people getting hot and bothered early in the morning. It's great. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so ready, man. I've been up for like two or three hours by this point. Oh. Uh, awesome. So I, I have a lot more questions, but the, the next one I want to hit on, um, I want to take a little bit of a step back. So I was listening to, I'm a big Naval Ravikant fan. I think he's a really interesting guy, um, really provocative guy. And he was talking the other day about luck. And he basically mentioned four types of luck. And the first three were types of luck that were sort of out of your hands or something where you could like, you know, preparation meets opportunity, whatever that is. But his fourth type of luck was the type of luck that you can consistently create. The question that he asked, which I thought was was interesting to pass along was, he said, if there are like a thousand dimensions and you want to build a company that's going to be successful in 999 of them, and, he, and the company's not necessarily barren fig in each one what are the things that you are going to do to build a successful company? Like what are the things that have been reliable drivers of growth and drivers of your business that you think could be, mm. would be successful no matter what you're building, no matter what dimension you're in. So like, I guess, business fundamentals, what are the core, core concepts? Uh, keeping. Yeah. I probably could have shortened that question to just that. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> Oh man. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So when you say a thousand dimensions, you're talking like parallel realities. Oh yeah. Oh sweet. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh man. Every night before bed, I I look up um, different paranormal stories because I I love that, and so many of them have like parallel realities sort of attached to them, and it's such a nice. fascinating fascinating yeah. idea. Anyway, a uh, big fan of, of Baron Fig in 999 Dimensions. Uh, <laughs> and I think if I were to do that, it would just be to start simple and be clear. We started with one product and we were like, this is for thinkers. A thinker is X, Y, and Z. Get it shipped to you for X price with free shipping, period. And then we just kind of like drilled it, drilled it home. We had one product for a year before we introduced a second product, which was just a pocket notebook. And then we had only those two products for like two years. Mm, amazing. That's a great answer. We, we talk a lot about uh, at Tacklebox. I don't know if you played as a kid, you ever play that, that game telephone where you'd whisper one thing that's something. Oh yeah. So uh, we talk about that a lot with your early company because people come in and, and I'll say like, all right, what are you doing? And they will, in the Baron Fee example, they would say, well, we're building 
notebooks and they're beautifully binded and they have doc grid versus line grid or the option to have doc grid versus line grid and they lay flat and the ink doesn't run and blah 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 and when you do that there's if you're playing a game of telephone there's no way that the second or third person is going to be able to pass that along yeah no way but that's no way. that's how you're going to grow early on is you're going to get people telling other people about what you're doing and if you can't describe it I always use the example of that Kickstarter company that the really heavy blanket. I don't know if you saw that one. Yep. Uh, for stress relief. And it, it raised whatever, five and a half million bucks. And yeah. I, I firmly believe it's because it's a heavy blanket for stress relief for, uh, to relieve stress. And it's easy Period. to say that it's easy to remember it. And it's sort of like novel because it's a really heavy blanket. You can kind of, you can feel it. You can, when you say that you, you know what, what the outcome is and, I think that's an incredibly tough thing. So I, I love that answer. Yeah. I'm going to give you uh, an example or I guess an idea that you can possibly use in the future. Cool. Uh, it's something that we, Adam and I used to teach and it's basically this and it, it's right on the heels of what you just said. So if I said we make a notebook for thinkers, you know, maybe that's two things that you have to remember, right? So think of a person's uh, attention span as a as a pie chart. Okay. So there's a hundred percent. And when I add two things, each thing gets 50%, right? Mm -hmm. And that's great. But now say I said a notebook with, uh, notebooks for thinkers, opens flat, high quality paper, perforations in the back. That's five things. So now each item only gets 20% of the person's attention. Mm -hmm. So right away, I instantly devalued every one of those. Mm -hmm. I love that because there there's only a hundred attention points to go around. Mm. And so basically managing the attention pie is a really important part of communicating your product. Amazing. I love that. So I'm going to end with two final questions. I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, I could probably ask you about a million more, but <laughs> no, let's do it. The next one that I think is, is an interesting one was again, something that one of our founders passed along and that was, is there anything counterintuitive? So, so there's like, let's say that there's a general theme or an idea around businesses. They need to do X, Y, Z to be successful. Is there anything that you disagree with strongly in that sort of common belief around what you have to do to be successful in a business? Um, I see a lot of founders. <laughs> it's funny. I'm on a podcast right now and I'm about to say like doing <laughs> podcasts and... <laughs> Uh, and, and like going and trying to give talks and writing books and writing blog posts and like becoming a personality. And I'll say that like, I have a lot of fun on stage. I have a lot of fun on podcasts. I really enjoy it. I've done, I've done it. The majority of it is just ego driven. I think, mm. uh, I really think that nothing beats the founder being at the studio or at the office with your team, setting an example, working side by side, motivating and helping mm -hmm. everyone rather than, you know, flying somewhere and giving a talk podcast. I, I do particularly enjoy because it's a low, it's as low stakes. I'm at home. I stay home for another hour in the morning or two hours. And then I do this and then I just come in a couple hours late. That's fine. But, but other than that, I think it's it's a giant distraction, and I see it a lot. So I would go for that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And I just listened to a podcast actually with um, 
Tim Ferriss. I'm not a huge Tim Ferriss guy, but he was interviewing Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, and I love that book. Oh, yeah. It's it's actually a really good podcast. I can throw it in the show notes, but he very rarely does any sort of the, any any opportunities like this, and he obviously gets asked about them a lot. So Tim asked him that question: How do you decide what to do and what when like when to do outward facing stuff and when to focus on your work? He said, and this is a big theme for his life, is he makes rules. So he was like, I need to make rules because every time that decision comes up, I can't say like, oh well, should I go to San Francisco and do this talk? That can't be the question. The question needs to be different. And consistent. So his question is, can I teach something to people who will leverage it? And will I learn something? And if the answer to both of those is yes, then he'll do the opportunity. If, if the answer to either one of those is no, he doesn't. Mm, that's great. And I don't know if that's the right criteria for you or for other founders, but I think there should be criteria like that around a lot of the external facing stuff you do. Agreed. Agreed. And especially here in New York City, and just meeting with just a lot of different founders and that's that's a big topic of conversation it's like i went here and gave this talk or i went here and did that and i'm and i'm always just like dude i i really don't care like that's cool and it was probably very fun like don't get me wrong i i like i said i love to to get on stage and you know engage an audience but if i'm if i'm focused on baron fig it is not the number one place i could be awesome so I think the last one that I'll end with, if you were starting Baron Fig today, how would you do it differently? Good question. I I think I would actually start advertising sooner. Uh, we didn't do any advertising mm-hmm. whatsoever until year four. For four straight years, uh, we just were totally word of mouth. And I don't really have a good reason, honestly, for not doing it. I guess it was just tough to to understand and and kind of grok with all the other things going on. But I, we've had good good results, and of course, there's so many ads out in the world because ads do work, and if they're tasteful, I'm I'm fully for it. Advertising, I think we could have started in year two rather than four. I wouldn't have done it right away. Cool. Um, and then the sign off question: If you had a billboard that early stage founders had to pass every day on their way to the office. Uh, what would it say? Oh, yeah. You asked me this the other day, and I had had a, an answer that I like, but today the answer is different. So I'm, I'm feeling different. Today my answer would be on a giant billboard that everyone could see would just be the words, have fun. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Because if you're having like fun, your work is better, the people around you are happier, and life is just – I mean, who the hell doesn't want to have fun? Yeah. I love that because a lot of our founders – I mean, they'll come in and they're, they get so bogged down by stuff and it's tough to build something. You can, you can feel it. It comes through in the brand if you're not really into what you're doing and really enjoying it. And brand is obviously so important. Yeah. So if I'm going to Baron Fig, what should I buy today? Oh, yeah. If you're going to <laughs> baronfig.com, you'll definitely want to check out the bestsellers and grab a confidant notebook. I highly recommend Dot Grid. It's the best paper type. And uh, start from there. And if you dig it, there's always the Squire pen, which uh, was recently named number one pen out of 100 by New York Magazine. Nice. I've been buying Baron Fig stuff since literally since you started. I, I'm pretty sure I was part of the first ever Kickstarter campaign. Um, so, Joey, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, learned a lot. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, yeah. This is awesome, man. Appreciate it. Brian, thank you. And everybody out there, thank you for listening. 
Awesome.